Adiós, acudí, mi angustia escuchó De aguas profundas me rescata Llegó mi clamor a su palacio de calma Church, our passage today comes from Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19. You can turn there in your Bible or you can read on the screen below. God's word says this to us. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarshish to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. So as I was reading this passage this week, as we are in the second to last week of the Making Our House a Home campaign or series that we do every year, I was reflecting on something that took place a few years ago in the life of Crossbridge Brickell. In 2017 and in 2018, Crossbridge Brickell was a platinum sponsor for Brickell Restaurant Week. It hasn't happened for the past two years. There's rumblings of it maybe coming back in the future. But in 2017, that was the launch of Brickell Restaurant Week, the first time it ever happened. It's like Miami Spice, but just for Brickell, it's one week. It's a a celebration of local restaurants and local chefs and great food. And we, as a church, we sponsored it. And the beginning of that week was a kickoff event at 600 World Plaza. There was a DJ, there was dancing, you know, the kind where you wear the headphones and only you can hear the music. It's hilarious to watch. 
There was all types of food vendors. Uh, restaurants were featured there. And we had a booth. As a platinum sponsor, we had a, a prominent booth there. And many of you that attended in 2017, you brought baked goods because we were passing out free desserts and just meeting people in the community. And I remember having the same conversation over and over and over again with those that we were meeting. And they were saying, wait, wait, you're a church? Yes, we're a church here in Brickell. And I said, wait, why are you a, a platinum sponsor of this event? That doesn't make any sense. I mean, it was like us and it was Kettle One Vodka. Why are you a sponsor? And we said, well, you know, we love the city. One of our values as a church is that we're city positive. We want to see God do great things in the city. We want to equip our church to make a great impact in the city. We want to celebrate great food. and We want to celebrate opportunities for community to be built. We want to support businesses. And time and time and time again, the response was, I never knew a church like that existed. Never heard of a church like that. And I kept walking away thinking, that is unbelievable and sad that people have never heard of or experienced or been a part of a church that is city positive and has hope for their city and wants to equip their church to make an impact in the city. That's who we desire to be as a church. You see, when we say that we're city positive, which is one of our values at Crossbridge, it's not just a tagline. That's a culture. That's a culture that we want to live and establish and be a part of, that we love our city, we celebrate our city, we pray for our city, and we work in our city to see renewal take place. And when we say things like, we want to equip you for impact, which is what we're looking at today in Acts chapter 11, we don't just say that as like an expected phrase that you would hear at the church. We say that because we really do desire to equip you for impact. Our mission statement as a church is to help connect life to the way of Jesus. We want every aspect of your life to be connected to the way of Jesus so that you can make an impact for the gospel in your church and in the city. That's who we are. Because we know when that takes place, it's life-giving. It's life-giving for you, it's life-giving for our community, and it's life-giving for our city as well. And this is what we see here in Acts chapter 11. We see a church that is equipped for impact, and we see great impact take place. Verse 19 reads this, now there were those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen that traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So what takes place here is the beginnings of the church that started in Jerusalem and begins to go out to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, it starts with persecution. And the persecution begins to ramp up. Stephen is stoned to death, and there's a scattering of Christians kind of all over the known world and in and out of different villages and cities. Almost all of the Christians at this point are Jews, and in fact, it says here that most of the Jewish Christians are only sharing the gospel with other Jews. They haven't always begun to speak to non-Jewish men and women, kind of staying within their comfort, within their bubble, within their community. And there's a scattering that takes place, and then in verse 20, we say, but there were some of them, some of these Christian Jews 
men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So there were some of them from Cyprus in the Mediterranean and from Cyrene, which is in North Africa, that went to the city of Antioch, and there, there was a conviction of the Holy Spirit, there was an encouragement, there was a charge within that group to go share the gospel, not just with Jews, but with non-Jews, with Hellenists, with the Greco-Roman people of the city. And so that took place. They began to preach the gospel of Jesus to the city, to everyone in the city, the Hellenists included. And we read then in verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So there is this major shift that begins to take place in Antioch that has not happened anywhere else yet. Because currently it's just Jews from the synagogues and the different cities and villages. But here in Antioch, Hellenists, non-Jews, Greco-Roman citizens and Jews are coming to faith. And there's a major shift taking place in this city. I mean, it, it is a, it's a major shift. Now, for a Jew to convert to Christianity, there's certainly a belief system shift. You see, the Jewish people were waiting for the Messiah, and they had to come to see that Jesus was, in fact, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies pointing to the Messiah. There was a shift in understanding that it's not about how good you are. It's not about your good works. It's about good grace given to you. It's about Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection atoning for your sins as the sacrificial lamb. And so there's a rereading of the Old Testament for these Jewish Christians. There's a belief system shift. But the culture shift for the Jewish Christians isn't nearly as great as it is for these Hellenists that come to faith in Christ. Nor is there belief shift. Because you have to understand, the people that are being spoken about here in Antioch are pagans. And they're converting to monotheism. They believe in many gods and kind of have the freedom to craft their own religion. They have the freedom to kind of pick and choose what, how they want the religion to function for them. They're, it's kind of like the original postmodern belief system. And they're now converting to believing that there's one God. Right During this time, there's a lot of philosophers. This is after the time of Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, but that has so much influence on this culture. That's why they're called Hellenists. They're influenced by that Greek culture. And the philosophers were trying to discover what was truth, and they had this term called the logos, which was the divine truth, kind of the truth above all others that holds everything together, but people didn't know what that was. It kind of wasn't identified. And so you're in this kind of soup, this like spiritual soup of nobody really knows what's true, and there's probably something bigger and they come to see that Jesus was, in fact, the Logos. He is the truth. That's why the gospel writer John in the book of John says that Jesus was the Logos. He was the Word. All of this shift is taking place, and it's a major turn for them to go from paganism to monotheism, to belief in Christianity and in Christ. But there's a cultural shift taking place, too, that is profound. See, this, this culture was so different from not only the Jewish culture, but certainly different as well from the Christian culture 
set by Christ himself. The Greco-Roman world was highly sexualized. I mean, anything goes. I've talked about that before. I've mentioned that in, in this series already of what this culture was like. But I remember many, many years ago, Jessica and I were in Italy and we went to Pompeii. That you know, has been preserved, that city, because the, the volcano erupted and covered in ash. And we're walking through the city and reading the map and we go into this one house and it's a brothel. It was a prominent place in the city and it had these small beds and on the walls there was pornographic murals and we were reading about just kind of the, the sexualized nature of the city and what everything was accepted and how everything was open and just how people viewed themselves and their freedom to just kind of choose and live how they wanted. Consumerism was at an all-time high in Antioch and in this culture where you were kind of trying to make it, trying to get luxury and trying to make money and that was a huge influence. There was this belief that because you could kind of create your own religion, you can also create your own lifestyle. And so to go from that to there's a clearly defined way to live that Christ has set for his people, his followers, his church, is a big shift. A major shift is taking place here in the life of the church. And as they begin to hear about this, it becomes very hard for the Christians to believe that this is true. They begin to say, wait, wait, wait a second. You're telling me that a bunch of people in Antioch, Hellenists, have converted to Christianity. They believe in Jesus as their Savior. They're changing their life. There's no way that's happened. You could have a category for that. The shift is such a great shift that they can't even process that that could be the case. And so what does it say they do? It says, when the report came to their ears in Jerusalem, which is the hub of Christianity at this time, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So like, listen, we got to see if this is real. So Barnabas, you need to go. Barnabas, we talked about last week. He's in featured in Acts chapter 4. His name is Joseph, but he's called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold his land and gave the proceeds to the community for their needs. He's an incredible man. In fact, Sinclair Ferguson, a pastor and theologian, says that the, the nickname uh, Barnabas, or the nickname that is identified here, that he was a good man, is maybe one of the highest honors we read about in Scripture because there's a connection, an equation here that Barnabas is like God because God is good. So Barnabas is identified as a godly man, as a good man. And he's encouraging others by the way that he lives, the generosity that he has with his possessions, the generosity he has with people, as we'll see. And so they send Barnabas, like Barnabas, we trust you, go to Antioch and figure out what's going on. So we read that when he gets there in verse 23, that he saw the grace of God and he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord in steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So he gets there and he sees what's taking place and he is glad because he sees the reports are true. 
these Hellenists have come to faith. Their belief has shifted 180. Their lifestyle and the culture that they were living before is shifting 180. And the church is growing and people are coming to faith in Christ. And when he gets there, more are coming to faith in Christ. And as this begins to take place, and he sees this, it says that Barnabas, in verse 25, went to Tarshish to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. So after he sees the reports in Antioch are true, he goes to get Saul, who is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, his original name was Saul, and it gets changed to Paul. Now, you have to stop. Sometimes we read Scripture so fast that we miss the significance of what is happening and we don't kind of analyze even the context by which something is written and said. So Barnabas, this esteemed leader in the church, is sent from Jerusalem to go to Antioch to see if the reports are true. They are, in fact, true, and he is glad. People are coming to faith. It's unbelievable what's taking place in Antioch. And then Barnabas goes to get Saul to come help him because he doesn't want to do ministry alone. Barnabas is almost never alone. He's always with other people. His mentality is always, how can I equip other people for impact so that we can make a greater impact together? He's almost never alone. So he goes and gets Saul. Now, from our perspective, you may think, well, that makes sense. The apostle Paul is like, I mean, unbelievable the way that God used him. But at this point, that's not true. See, this is Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 9, Saul, the Apostle Paul, comes to faith in Christ. He's on the way to Damascus to imprison and to kill Christians. He meets the resurrected Christ on the road, and his belief system is radically changed. His life is radically changed in a moment. And then after that, he begins to share the gospel with Jews. The Apostle Paul was a Jew as well. He was a Pharisee, a a religious leader in the Jewish faith community. You see, he feels called to ministry. He feels called to be a pastor, to be a church planner. And he begins to share the gospel. He was confounding the Jews, meaning he was a very effective evangelist. But after this took place, he goes to Jerusalem so that he can meet with the disciples because he wants to feel included. And it says that they're afraid of him. And they, they struggle to believe whether or not he actually believes in Christ. Whether or not the account of his story is true. See, Paul was not fully accepted at this time. He was like kind of kept at a distance. They were skeptical. And you could understand why. He was rounding up their friends. He was killing their friends. The, the scattering of the Christian community that we read about here in the very first verse, in verse 19, is a result of the stoning of Stephen, and Paul was there holding the coats of the men that threw the stones. So they're skeptical. They're like, wait, 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 this could be a plan. Maybe he's faking it so he can infiltrate us and then destroy us and imprison us. So they're skeptical. They keep him at a distance. And then we read here in Acts chapter 11 that Barnabas goes to find Saul, the Apostle Paul. The generosity 
that Barnabas has with people is very challenging. He does not keep Paul at a distance. He seeks him out. He brings him in. You see, at this time, the Apostle Paul is operating on an island. But Barnabas sees and he knows that there is so much potential in him. There is so much opportunity for God to use him. And he feels led to go get Saul to bring him to Antioch because what he needs is to feel accepted and to feel loved and to be empowered and equipped to make a great impact for the gospel. He just needs that opportunity. And so he goes and he brings them. They stay there for a whole year and together they begin to teach and to train this church in Antioch. Unbelievable. And as this begins to take place, and they're training, and they're being taught, and they're all together here, the Christians are first identified with that name. It says here in verse 26, and in Antioch, the disciples, that sometimes when you read the word disciple, it doesn't just mean Peter and Paul and John. It means followers of Christ. So sometimes it's identifying the entire community of the church, which it's saying here, and the disciples, the followers of Christ, were first called Christians. Here, they were first called Christians. Now, you read that and you're like, oh, that's really nice. Here's where our name comes from as Christian. But this title was not a term of endearment. In fact, this was a name that the society was throwing on this church and on these people that was a mockery. The term Christian was connected with Christ, who was the anointed one. And so these are like the anointed ones. And the kind of way that it would sound now would be someone saying like, oh, these are the oily ones. I mean, do you want to be called the oily ones? That's what they're saying. These like, yeah, they're like followers of the anointed one, these oily people. And so this mockery and this kind of insult label that's given to this community, to the Christians, they won't stand for it. They begin to launch an attack. They, they fight back. They defend themselves. They say, how could you say that? Why would you say that? That is offensive. And they begin to create a campaign you know, to, to not be mocked and not be insulted. They don't do any of that. They accept that name. We're the oily ones. That's weird. Weird name. But, I mean, it's okay. Why? Why would they do that? Why would they accept a name that was a mockery to them? Well, I think because like their leader, Barnabas, who's generous with people, his generosity is extended to Paul, and then also extended to the people in Antioch because he spends a whole year there, that trickles down to the community, and they are also generous with people. I have to imagine that they had to have thought, well, it makes sense that they would mock us and insult us. They don't believe in Christ. They look at the radical change in our life. They look at our belief system that is radically changed. They look at what we're claiming is true, and they think it's insane. Makes sense that they would insult us. Makes sense that they would outcast us or overlook us. It's okay. Let's be generous with them. Let's be patient with them. And that's exactly what they are. They have this 
positive posture to the city and its people. A positive posture to the city and its people, even when the city and the people of the city don't have a positive posture towards them. They are city positive. Because they understand that they're being equipped and they're called to make an impact in the city, not for their name and their ego, but for Christ and his mission and his church. You see, the Apostle Paul or Saul and Barnabas are there with them for a year, teaching many of them, teaching them together. See, what is being revealed here is that there is a togetherness. There is a unity. There is a collective mission that we have together. They're a diverse church, certainly. They have Hellenists and they have Jews. They have different level of socioeconomic classes together, people from different places in the world. From, some from North Africa, some from Mediterranean islands, some that are born and raised there, some from Jerusalem, people from all over the place. But they're together in mission. They're being taught together, they're being trained together. And as we will see, they serve and give together because they're all being equipped to make an impact as one, not just individuals making impact as they choose, and as they feel led, but together they are being prepared to make an impact. You know, I think this is a big problem with our Western American culture, and certainly in the church too, is that we have a lot of options. We love options. I mean, most of the like, fast, casual restaurants, they play upon this. They give you so many options. So if you go to Zook or if you go to Rice House or if you go to Chipotle, there's a whole bunch of other places that are the same. You go through, you pick your protein and your base and you, you pick your sauces or whatever and then you get to the end and it's like an unbelievable amount of options. And if you're like me, you, you always are asking like, I don't really know what goes with what. I always pick too many things because I have the option. They're all free. So I'll just get as many as possible. And then if the flavor doesn't work, I'll just drown it in sauce. That's kind of how it works for me. But we, we love options. We want our shows. We have to have every option. We've got to have all these different kind of streaming channels. We want to be able to like be able to access anything at any time. And options are great. There's nothing wrong with options. But sometimes options can get in the way of unity and mission particularly in the church. Because what happens is when you live in a culture of options and you celebrate your ability to choose things for yourself, when you get into an environment and a community that is called to be together, to be on mission together, to be united together, to give together, to serve together, you can begin to think, well, that's optional. I'll choose and I'll pick what I want, whatever I feel like, because I like my options. So I'll discover which is the one that I like. I want to read you this great excerpt from the satirical website, uh, Babylon Bee. And this perfectly encapsulates what I'm saying. It says this, Doug Farmer, 43, reported Tuesday that he was recently led by God toward several things he really likes. And in fact, 
As a general rule, everything he feels spiritually moved to do, he coincidentally enjoys very much. For instance, last week, Farmer was considering whether he should go to the men's golf outing or volunteer at the city food pantry. When he says miraculously, he knew just what to do. You, say, you could say, I really just felt led to lend my support to the church event, Farmer confirmed to reporters. It would have been great to be a volunteer over at the food pantry, but I had to say, here I am. Send me, Lord, even to the ends of the fairway. Plus, I recently purchased a new driver, which I took as a definite sign. Additionally, he felt led to attend the church's Super Bowl party last year, which just so happens he thoroughly enjoyed. The next Sunday, Farmer was unable to sign up for the church's outreach visit to the senior home or the juvenile detention center due to a lack of a nudge from the Holy Spirit. But he did feel moved to participate in the men's group annual chili cook-off. He was also able to fend off several invitations by church's leadership to attend the new discipleship class, sorrowfully noting that not only would the time interfere with his Tuesday TV viewing lineup, but that he just didn't feel as if he was being led to a diligent study of the Word in that season. It isn't always easy listening for that still small voice that just so happens to send me to do things I really want to do, admitted Farmer. Would I like to volunteer for the house building project? Sure. But what can I do if the Spirit is leading me to come alongside Frank and fellowship, Frank and fellowship by going to the game instead? That perfectly exemplifies what I'm saying. It's hilarious. But that sometimes the mentality can be, I'm only led to serve, I'm only led to engage, I'm only led to be equipped to make an impact if I feel it, if it's an option that I choose. You see, I want you to really hear me here. I'm not saying that you should over-program your life with church events or church opportunities. That's dangerous too. But I am saying that some options are not optional. And at Crossbridge, we try to present options to you that really shouldn't be optional, but are good for your flourishing and that will enable you to make an impact in the church, make an impact in the city, and that will ultimately also make an impact in your life. You see, we don't view Sunday service whether you're viewing online or whether you attend in person, as an option. That is a calling that we're required to commit to. We don't view small group as an option. We think that you need to be in smaller community with people in your life that know you more, that can hear that, where you can study God's word together with them. See, we don't, we don't view serving on a bridge team whether it's our foundation team and set up and tear down, it's our kids ministry team, it's our creative team that oversees tech, whether it's our welcome team, our care team, or our city serve team. We don't view these things as options. We think that you need to be serving with your talents and with your time in the life of the church so that it can impact your life, that you can impact the lives of others, and that you can then impact the city. These things we don't view as options but as things necessary for you to commit to for your flourishing, for the flourishing of your community, and for the impact that it may make in the church and in the city. See, that's what happens here in Antioch. They commit together. 
They're trained and taught together, and that pours out into the city. Starts in the church, and it pours out into the city. And that is our desire too. In fact, as we've mentioned here in the service already, that next Sunday is Pledge Sunday. If you go on our website, crossbridgefamily.com, you'll see the pledge card up there. And we do that every year because we want to give you the opportunity to pledge your time, your talent, and your treasure so that we might be able to equip you for impact. See, the Making Our House a Home campaign really is about two things. One, it enables us to plan. So as you pledge your treasure, your financial treasure for the next year, it enables us to plan the budget, to be good stewards, to be wise, and to be able to celebrate what God is going to be able to do through you and your generosity and the generosity of this church in the city. But secondly, we do the pledge card because we want to be able to equip you to make an impact. That's why we ask you to pledge your time and your talent because we want to know, I want to know where can, where can you be plugged in? Where can you flourish? Where can you make an impact? How do you need to be equipped? Because some options are not optional. They're things to commit to and they're things that bring great joy. They are life-giving. And that is what this church in Antioch understood. Some things are not optional. That's why in verse 27 we read the following. After this was taking place in the life of the church, it said that in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stirred up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So again, the disciples spoken about here means all of the Christians, not just Barnabas and Paul or Saul, but this church. They're there, this prophet comes, Agabus, and he speaks about a famine that is coming. It's going to affect the whole world. Hasn't happened yet. And they immediately think about others. The famine's going to affect them too, but they begin to assess, hey, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay, but we know others that will not be okay. We need to take initiative to begin to gather up resources. We need to use our time and our talent and our treasure now, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of others that are going to be affected. So let's pledge that. Let's do that. And they make this faith pledge, not knowing when the famine will exactly come, but trusting in faith. They make a pledge. And they begin to gather up resources. And I love what it says. It says, everyone gave according to their ability. Everyone had different levels of ability, different levels of time and talent and treasure. It's a diverse church, but they're one. But everyone gave according to their ability. Why? Because being unified was not an option for them. Serving together was not an option. Being on mission together was not an option. Giving was not an option. Everyone gave according to their ability. And they gave so with joy. See, our prayer every year 
is that everyone would make the pledge for making our house a home. According to your ability. That you would pledge your time and your talent and your treasure. And for you, that may be a faith pledge. You may say 2020 was a really hard year. It still is a really hard year. I have no idea what 2021 is going to bring. I don't know how my time is going to be affected. I don't know how my talents are going to be affected. I don't know how my treasure is going to be affected. See, this pledge is a faith pledge. You're saying, God, I don't know what's coming. You know what's coming. But I want to pray about how I can be together in mission with my church so that you can use me and equip me to make a great impact, both here in our community and also in the city. Help me know how to make a faith pledge with my time and with my talent and with my treasure. Because the greatest impact is when everyone is involved not just a few. You see, two things in closing we see here in Acts chapter 11 that really stand out. One is the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. The gospel is powerful to save anyone, to change anyone. I mean, it is shocking to the church that Hellenists in Antioch come to faith in Christ. They would have thought, no way, they're pagans. They follow Greco-Roman culture. There is no way in the world they would believe in Christ. And yet, what, look what God does. Because the gospel is powerful. Nobody is ever too far gone. You are not too far gone. Maybe you feel like that. Maybe you think about other people that you think are too far gone. No one is. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that he lived the life that you couldn't, a perfect life, that he died the death that you deserved, that he died for your shame and your sin, and your guilt. He was buried in the grave and he came forth alive, resurrected on the third day and he offers you grace through faith. That gospel is powerful to save anyone. You and your friends and your family, anyone. The gospel is powerful to save anyone and the gospel is powerful to change. It can change anything. It can change a city. And that's the second thing. That we have hope for the city. See, we have hope for our city because the gospel is powerful to change. The city is not too far gone. The country is not too far gone. That system is not too far gone. That issue in our society is not too far gone. That perspective or that evil or that injustice or that pain, it's not too far gone. We have hope for our city. We pray for our city. We seek to be equipped to make an impact in our city because the gospel is powerful to change. It can bring renewal. I love when it says that Barnabas arrived in Antioch and it says that he sees what's happening in the city and the community. It says he was glad because he saw firsthand the power of the gospel and the hope for the city. See, that, church, is what we're moved to do. We're moved to be people of action that see that the gospel is powerful enough to save anyone and to change anything, and so we should have hope for our city. We should be moved to action. Like those men from Cyprus and Cyrene that go to, to Antioch and say, why, why is no one sharing the gospel with the Hellenists? I'm going to share the gospel with the Hellenists. And look what God does. 
like Barnabas who goes and says, no, I'm going to commit to a year. I'm going to go get Saul who's been kind of distanced away. I'm going to bring him too and equip him for impact. I'm going to take action there, initiative there. Like the church that says, you know what? We hear about the famine coming. We could think about ourselves and prepare for ourselves, but no, we're going to take action for someone else. Because the gospel is powerful and there's hope for the city. There's hope for those that are going to be struggling and we can be a part of meeting that. We can make an impact in their life. I love here in the story of Antioch, there's three characters. There's Saul, there's Barnabas, and there's the church. It's not some of the leaders got together and gave according to their ability. It's they all did. Saul and Barnabas, their leaders, and the church, everyone together gave. And look at the impact that they made. Why? Because being on mission together is not optional. Giving together is not optional. Serving together is not optional. Worshiping together is not optional. Being equipped for impact together is not optional. The gospel is powerful enough to change anyone and to change anything, and we have hope for our city. And God is calling us to commit together to be a part of that. To experience the joy of seeing the gospel change people's lives, to change a city and to bring renewal. So I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you to pray this week. Pray this week how you can be a part of bringing hope to the city, of seeing the gospel change people's lives, change the life of our city. How you can do that together in the context of the church. I hope that you will really pray about filling out that pledge card. That it wouldn't be something you just do because you feel compelled or you feel pushed to do. Don't do that. Do it because you understand that we're supposed to be together. Commit together and God's going to do something incredible. I want to be able to equip you, church, for impact. And this is how we do it. I pray that you'll take that up. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for the opportunity to be challenged by your word, to see the unity in this church, to be able to reflect back on what you have done through leaders in the past, through brave and bold Christians. What you have done through your gospel, bringing hope to the city. Shocking hope. Almost unbelievable. We know that you can do the same thing now. Our city is not too far gone. Our country is not too far gone. Nothing is too far gone because your gospel can save anyone. It can change anything. Would we have that kind of hope? And will we commit together to be a part of that? Will we seek to be equipped for impact together in our time and our talent and our treasure? We pray this over our church. In Jesus' name, amen.